Real quick, let me start. Uh, so um, it's gray skies and 46 degrees, and the Browns got their win out of the way on Thursday. That means that today is the perfect nap day. So um, at the end of a wedding, and I've done three so far this month, I say, uh, therefore, by the power vested in me, by the laws of God and the sovereign state of Ohio, I now pronounce that you are husband and wife. I'm going to say by the laws of God, the power invested in me by the laws of God and the laws of the sovereign state of Ohio, I now pronounce that this afternoon, naps are officially sanctioned. <laughs> the reason this is important is because every husband knows that if you are caught taking a non-sanctioned nap, Life gets bad quick. So, naps have officially been sanctioned for today because it is 46 degrees. Crack the window a little bit, double up on the covers. Perfect afternoon nap weather with the Browns win out of the way. All right, so we, now that you can thank me later, guys, um, that's official, though. Uh, this is week nine of my Revelation series. We've been walking through the last book of the Bible. Um, we'll go this week and next week and then um, move on to something else. In November, I want to do this uh, series I've been working on called We Got This, uh, dealing with uh, you know, just setbacks in life, and certainly this is a season of, of, of challenge for all of us. Just We got this. So I'm going to take uh, four passages in the Bible that I sort of center my life around when when I get a little bit stressed or things feel a little out of control, I'll, I'll look to these four passages of Scripture just to remind myself, man, we got this. And so we're going to do that in November. Um, if you are newer to Polaris or newer to um, um, this series, uh, you can always catch my, um, the, the back episodes uh, through the, on the website or with uh, YouTube, search Polaris Christian Church and... Um, You'll find the, the other sermons. But we've got two left. I'm going to talk about a theme today uh, that is sort of uh, lying just believe, beneath the surface of the entire Bible. Okay, if, you, if you're aware of it or if you, if you read the Bible kind of artfully, I guess you could say, you pick up on this theme that lies just below the surface of the, the entirety of Scripture, but it's especially apparent in the book of Revelation. So if you've been around Polaris long, you've heard me talk about my godfather principle for reading scriptures. And it's like this. One of my favorite movies is The Godfather. I don't necessarily recommend it. It's just one of my personal favorites. And uh, Francis Ford Coppola, he, he doesn't speak in bullet points. He lets you kind of take in the movie and draw your own conclusions. And so you may watch The Godfather and think at first that it's glorifying violence and crime. But then as you progress through the movie, you start to realize, wait a minute, everyone involved in this lifestyle ends up uh, dead or in jail or paranoid or alone. Maybe this lifestyle isn't so glamorous. But it doesn't really preach that in the movie. You just kind of pick it up if you watch it um, intentionally if you take it in. And so what you find in Scripture, and this is really important because the modern Western reader, we tend to read things like we do textbooks and we're waiting for things to be told to us. Believe this, believe this, believe this. And while the Scriptures have some of that, I think some of the more powerful messages 
are like sort of breathed in as you read and wrestle with it. So we're going to see that here. So what I'd like for you to do is if you could take one of the Bibles in front of you or fire up your smartphone or whatever and turn to Genesis 10. This is just a little exercise in that. We'll do the screen later but, but um, so you can you know, cheat and read off the screen. But turn to Genesis 10. It should be on maybe page 7 or 8. First book of the Bible, look for the big number 10. It's on page 9 of my Bible at my office, but I'm going to guess it. So when you, page 8? Okay, page 8. And you know, So the first part of, of the story of God is God creates the world, and everything is sort of uh, tribal and uh, communal. Now there's, some, there's already some, some rough themes introduced, but it's still... Um, very local, very you know, tribal-centered, family-centered, clan-centered. And then you get to this in Genesis 10, 8. <clears throat> Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty hunter on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That's why it said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Apparently there was some saying a bazillion years ago that was like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. I don't know really how to apply that, but that's, that's a, a thing. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, which can also be translated Babel, uh, Uruk, Akkad, Kelna, and they are located in Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh and some other things I can't pronounce, which is between Nineveh and Kela, which is the great city. So... You could skip right over that without thinking much of it because we're used to that kind of language and you know, sci-fi and history and kingdoms. And, but if you're taking in this story for the first time, you can ask yourself why. Why all of a sudden is there a mighty warrior? Why all of a sudden is there a guy who is building a kingdom? Why is he combining cities and building a kingdom through war? Because if you're a warrior, you're using war. Why? Where did that come from? Like you should step back if you're really taking in the story, maybe for the first time and, and, and weren't, weren't um, a sort of you know, watered down uh, from, from the world and from all of a sudden in the story of the development of human beings, there is a warrior and he is building a kingdom at the expense of others, because that's the implication of war. Like, like, why is that all of a sudden a part of the human story? Like, we, we're familiar enough with humanity now that we just take that for granted, but really, why? Where did that come from? Why is there a guy now creating war to build an empire? All right, I'm going to move forward now. To Genesis 11, and we're going to see how God responds to this human tendency. Okay? <clears throat> now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar. Remember? So, what's Shinar? We just learned in Genesis 10, one chapter earlier, that Shinar was the region where Nimrod was building his kingdom. Nimrod, the guy who 
uh, the warrior, the, the guy of war, is building a kingdom, and it's in Shinar, and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Now, what do we learn? Again, this is not laid out for you bullet points, but now there's this, there's this people in this new kingdom, and the kingdom is being built, and now they have a new technology. They can make bricks, and instead of stone and mortar, now they have bricks and tar, and they can build things with bricks and tar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So they're already using war to expand their territory. And now they have technology. And who are they using it for? Ourselves. Let's build ourselves this thing and protect ourselves and protect our name. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said... If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. So there's this tendency that we see developing on page like nine of the Bible. People using their skills and resources to increase and expand themselves instead of using their gifts and resources for the benefit of everybody. That's a tendency that starts that we can call empire, okay? Evil empire starts there in Genesis 10 with an underlying tendency to use ourselves and our resources and our, our things and our skills to expand and, and fortify ourselves rather at the expense of others, if necessary, rather than expending ourselves to help. Others. So that's, that's really, really important that you see at the beginning of the story of God is this empire tendency. And the root of the empire tendency is I will expand and protect myself at the expense of others if necessary. Okay, that's one way to live. Now it's interesting, again, <clears throat> just below the surface, nothing that is delineated in Scripture yet. God, what's, how's God respond to empire in Genesis 11? He squashes it. He scatters it, right? They can't build the city anymore because God steps in. He confuses them. Uh, by, by Genesis uh, 37, let me get that right. By Genesis 37, so just a few chapters later, we see, I'm not going to read anything from it. I hear pages turning, but you can scan it. We see empire is back. Egypt has now emerged. So what, what you're reading along, you're like, wait a minute, I thought God just crushed empire. Well, humans have figured out how to do it again. It's now a tendency. Empire 
is back. The Empire Strikes Back for all you Star Wars nerds out there that are getting excited when I say Empire's back. I can call anybody a nerd I want to because my last name is Poindexter. I don't watch your stupid movies. <laughs> um, so Egypt is now not only building an empire, they're building it on the backs of slaves. Again, the Bible doesn't say anything about that. You just the, the curious readers like, wait a minute. Now not only are we building empire, we're using human beings as like a workforce, like exploiting human beings to build the empire. Isn't that strange? Like, why would we, why would we even think to do that? Now, by Exodus, next chapter in the Bible, what I'm trying to do is showing you it's all through the story of God, okay? By the next book of the Bible, um, the Israelites, the people of God, find themselves now enslaved by the greatest empire the world has ever known. Egypt is just, the boot is on their neck. And what's God do? God liberates the Israelites from slavery and crushes that empire, or at least sets them back severely um, as they try to pursue the Israelites. But then, by the middle of the Old Testament, when the Israelites um, have, have uh, been given land from God, we see this great King Solomon rise up, and what does he start to do? He deals arms and weapons to other countries. He builds and expands Israel on the backs of slaves. He's creating alliances. What's he building? An empire at the expense of others, exploiting through taxation. Like you just see this crazy theme in the Bible that given the opportunity, we as humans will expand ourselves and fortify ourselves at the expense of others. We will use what we have to gain more at the expense of others rather than use what we have to help others in need. There's this dangerous tendency that we have. It lives within us. Even though we look at it and say, well, that makes no sense. Why would they ever think to do that? <clears throat> then we start to look at our lives and we realize the root is there. Will I use what I have, my skills and my resources, to help others? Or will I, at their expense, use them to increase my wealth, my influence, my whatever, okay? So now, let's talk about, um, let's leave that for a second. I want to talk about something else. We've talked about this before in this series. <clears throat> the, the Jews and the Christians, at the time of the writing of Revelation, had, there was a new empire, the Roman Empire, uh, which, which made every other world empire that had ever existed, especially on the military side, look like, look like nothing, okay? And this empire had their boot on the neck of the Jews and the Christians. And while this was the case, uh, there was this expectation for God to do something. So this idea is introduced 
um, or, or at least um, the imagery is introduced in Daniel 7. And this was a promise that every ancient Jew and Christian would have been well aware of, um, especially when Jesus arrived on the scene. This was an expectation of, of every ancient Jew before Christianity has its rise. Okay, this is in Daniel 7. <coughs> in my vision, at night I looked. <clears throat> and there before me was one like a son of man, a human one, coming with the clouds of heaven. And we talked about that means like with power and judgment from God. He approached the Ancient of Days, that's God, and was led into his presence, and he was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So here we have imagery of God bringing an alternative kingdom to the world. Right? There's kingdom, but then notice the language that this kingdom is every tribe and nation and language. Like Usually a kingdom, think back to Babel or Babylon or there at Shinar that Nimrod built, it's one people and one language and one region. But God was going to bring a kingdom that was for everybody. And right away you can begin to wonder, well, wait a minute, kingdoms are built at the expense of somebody. Like, you don't build a kingdom where somebody ain't losing. But here's a kingdom that, that, that's for everybody, and God's going to bring it. And this was something that they were waiting for in the ancient world. Now, Jesus arrives on the scene, and you'll, begin, you'll see this in Matthew 4. His first message, he began by announcing, Change your life, because the kingdom of God is here. So Jesus kind of said, now that I'm here, this kingdom you've been waiting for that's for all people, it is here as well. Okay, now I want to move to Revelation, and, and I want you to see, um, I'm relying on you to read Revelation, okay? And when you read Revelation, and we've talked about some of the ancient um, uh, imagery and how it related to first century events, but now when you read it, think about this concept of two kingdoms and of empire, and of one way of life that says, I will use my resources and my clout to expand myself, just like the Tower of Babel, versus I will use what I have to help others uh, and, and be for others. Okay, so take a look at these two kingdoms here in Revelation. Um, you have made them to be a kingdom of God, or you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. So right there we see, in, in Revelation 4 and 5 is like the victory speech, okay? And God is saying, um, the, the people are, are praising God because what's he done? He's brought a kingdom, and it's a kingdom of priests. We're going to talk about that next week, what it means that, that God has brought a kingdom of priests and what the implications are for our life. But, but there... You, you win God, you brought your kingdom, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forevermore. So this points to a kingdom of God that exists, and then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, it's a bowl of wrath, 
and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. So there you see a kingdom of the beast. It's also called the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of Satan. Uh, there's this idea of this, of this worldly kingdom. And then there's the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God eventually wins. And you're going to see that throughout the book of Revelation. There's the kingdom of, the war, of, of God, and it's going to defeat the kingdom of the world. But what is required is faith. You have to believe in the end that the kingdom of God is worth living out. Because everything in this world, and it's certainly you think about the ancient Christians that were being crushed by the Roman Empire, everything about the kingdom of the world seemed to be winning. Everything about using what you have to crush anyone in your path and you know, expand yourself at the expense of others and the haves and the haves, that all seemed to be winning. But the message of Revelation is, hold on, because there's a new kingdom here, and that's eventually going to win. Now, whatever you want to call that kingdom, the concept is all through Scripture. Here's another way that Jesus puts it in Matthew 5, or Matthew 7, I'm sorry. This is Matthew 7, 13, and 14. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So in terms of, of application from all this, here's the first thing that I really want you to, to, to do and to see. Recognize that one of the core messages of Jesus is, call it kingdoms, call it empires, whatever you want to call it, here he calls it a gate or a path. There is a broad path to life, and many travel it, and it looks really good. And there is a narrow path, and few travel it, but ultimately it leads to life. And at the end of the day in this world, you have to just kind of trust it. Because a lot of times it's not going to look like it's going to get you a win and it's going to look like way more people are living that way and benefiting from it. But the call is to trust and put your hope in the narrow path. Now, here's super practical, and this might be your takeaway from the whole series, okay? In Matthew 7, Jesus outlines the two. He says, you know, there's, there's this road and there's this road. There's the high road, there's the low road. There's the wide road, there's the narrow road. What do you want to call it? And, and the wide road uh, leads to destruction, but a lot of people are on it. It's most convenient. And there's the narrow road, and few people travel it, but it leads to life. Now, he has just gotten done with his famous Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And in that concise three chapters, Jesus lays out, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. So here's what I want you to know, and let this, you know, blaze this on your brain. If I had any three chapters from the Bible or any small section, any page of Scripture, and I, all I could have is one page of Scripture to live the rest of my life, it would be the Sermon on the Mount. Because in those three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, 
Jesus gives us everything we need to know to practically, very practical ways, live out life in a way that honors God. That If you just take the rest of your life and put into practice Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and it's all about basically Jesus is saying, you, know, you don't use people for your own gain. Whether in fun, by making fun of people and calling people idiots. I mean, that's in there. You don't call people idiots. How practical is that when you're on the road or in the U-scan aisle or wherever? In the comment section of Facebook, don't call people idiots. Don't overlook the image of God in people. Don't lust, because what you're doing there is you're using somebody for your own benefit. Then he talks about like lying. Don't lie to gain something. Let your yes be yes or your no be no. And then he goes on to talk about mercy versus revenge and, and seeking reconciliation versus getting even. All these things that are manifestations of evil empire. Jesus says, this is what evil empire looks like. But I tell you, live like this. And he presents this alternative kingdom. And if you read scripture on a practical life level, that's what the Bible's all about. Here's evil empire. Here's an alternative kingdom. The alternative kingdom is not based on geography. It's a lifestyle. And Jesus came to lay out his kingdom, which was a lifestyle. And this is a life of mercy and compassion and humility and love and generosity, which is opposite of that empire tendency that was there from Genesis 10 on of using and exploiting anyone and everything for our own personal gain. Let me read to you from Revelation 14. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Now here's what I think John means from that. There is a, now I, I talked about this a few weeks ago. I, I think the mark of the beast is probably something the ancient Christians could have identified with, with um, the Roman Empire and, and things that you had to do and believe and agree to, um, pronouncements you had to make about Caesar in order to just do normal business. That would, have, that would have worked its way into like idolatry for them. But the mark of the beast is also something eternal, or not eternal, but for us here today and as long as this world is the way it is. And that's this concept of empire. This idea of you're either going to do things to benefit yourself and use what you have to gain more for yourself at the expense of others, on the backs of others, or you're going to be a part of this alternative kingdom that says, I'm going to love people, I'm going to be merciful, I'm going to be generous, I'm not going to look at my stuff as a way to make myself better. 
I'm going to look at my stuff, my resources, and my skills, and my influence as a way to help everybody. And I think what John is saying is, he says, what's he called? He says, this is a call to patient endurance. In other words, you are going to have times in your life when you just have to trust the path of Jesus because it is not going to look like it's very beneficial for you. There are going to be times where the slime ball gets the promotion and you get overlooked. And it looks like they won. It looks like their path of lying about anything and everything and backstabbing, it looks like that's the way to get somewhere. And it's going to be tough not to sell out. This is a call for patient endurance. John says, God's kingdom is going to win. Or something happens, you know, in your neighborhood or in the schools or whatever where, where, where you just see it and you're just like, that is just so wrong. Or they did that to me. Or, or somehow you know that, man, the bad guy just won there. Or maybe you look at your life and you realize, that's how I roll. I'm cutthroat. I'll do anything to win. I'll use people, I'll whatever, um, I'll scheme, I'll... This is a call for us to say, we may not win here and now from this lifestyle. Now usually, in my experience, you do win. Maybe not materially, but that thing that helps you sleep at night, that helps you feel like you're building a good legacy, inner peace, that, that comes from these Jesus principles. But sometimes it's just a call to trust and hope. Like you have to put your hope in God's promise that even though I am sacrificing as much as I could have and as protected as I could be and as far as I could get, I'm sacrificing that. And at times, it's going to seem like I'm losing but I'm going to put my hope in the Jesus path of life. At the end of the day, I'm going to have to stand before God. And I'm going to put my hope and my trust in this alternative kingdom rather than empire and let the chips fall where they may. So what I'd love for you to do is to spend some time in the next week and just kind of Think about your path to life. Are you taking that broad road that leads to momentary gain at the expense of others? Or are you taking the narrow road? And I'm telling you, man, you'll find this, at when you're aware of this, you'll see this on every level, from global government to, to youth sports, empire, and building something at the expense of others is at work everywhere and no matter how well we live, we're always close to it. We're always close enough to step into that worldly kingdom ourselves. So just think through the implications. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to do one last song. Uh, Father, I'm, I'm grateful uh, that you came to point out there's this selfish way of life with temporary gain. And you also came to promise that one day you will come back and your reward is with you. And you will make things right. Father, we look at a world that is damaged and broken. And um, um, also, uh, we think about ways that we have fallen victim 
to evil empire. But our hope is in you. All our hope is in you and all our trust is in you. And we're going to lean into your way of life with complete trust, believing that is the best approach to life. In Jesus' name, amen.